Jane Urquhart was born in Little Long Lack. That's poetic, isn't it? It's, it's a bilingual name. Ontario, and grew up in Toronto. She's the award-winning author of six internationally acclaimed novels, including Away, The Underpainter, which won the Governor General's Award, and most recently, A Map of Glass. She's also the author of a collection of short fiction, four books of poetry, and the editor of the Penguin Book of Canadian Short Stories. She lives in southern Ontario. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. You, along with 23 others? I think it's yeah. close to two dozen. Have been commissioned? Yes. To write a short personal? Response, in a sense. And they are biographies, but they were meant to be reflections as well as a compendium of facts. Of Lucy Maud Montgomery, in your and case. And various other well-known dead Canadians, in the yeah. case of the other people. As part of the Penguin Extraordinary Canadians series. You, uh, of course, know that Lucy Maud Montgomery called biography a screaming farce. Which is quite ironic, but I have to agree with her. A man called Joe Rosenblatt, the poet, referred to biographers as biographical terrorists. So I think that might be perhaps not exactly the same, but you can see that there's a certain amount of fear involved in the notion of biography. I believe that Montgomery likely knew it was a screaming farce because I think she spent a good deal of her life creating her own biography. Yes, she tampered with and polished up her diaries. They were written for an audience, weren't they? Uh, yes, I, I, that's, I think, been made quite clear by the various scholars who have looked at the diaries after they were edited, mm -hmm. and by, of course, Mary Rubio and Elizabeth Waterston, who spent all those years doing all that work and all that annotation and editing of the diaries. It's pretty obvious, blatantly obvious, that she often took notes at the time and then didn't write up a particular chapter of her life until sometimes a year or two later. So you can imagine the kind of ordering and the sense of composition, the sense of reordering of experience that would go into her diaries. It was almost as if, if she didn't write about something, she hadn't really fully lived it. Yes, I think that was very true, especially when she was younger. As she got older, though, I got the sense that she was really trying to control the way posterity would see her, which was surprising in a way because her life was so dark and so, so filled with depression and despair that one would have hoped that perhaps she would have wanted to be viewed in a, in a slightly lighter way, but it, it felt like a house of mirrors entering those diaries because you didn't really know what was real and what wasn't or whether in fact she was crazy or perhaps her husband was crazy or you just you know, you knew her husband was yeah, crazy, he was, but yeah. it, it, was, it was very, very kind of tricky in a way. Well, and the fact that there was such a stigma surrounding it that they didn't want that truth to get out, I would imagine. Yes, there was that as well, but I was a little uncertain by the time I had finished closely reading the diaries. I was reading, obviously, the edited versions. I didn't go, I have to tell you, into the archives and go through the, the endless piles of paper that, of course, Waterston and Rubio did. God bless them. But by the time I had finished those diaries, I was a little uncertain as to whether or not Montgomery was telling the emotional truth. It was like she was turning her diary into a work of fiction. Like a, exactly, yeah. and it would seemed as if because the darkness didn't necessarily enter her novels, though I, I think there is plenty of darkness, but it was the perception was that they were light and sunny. I think a kind of overload of darkness went into the diaries. 
Yeah, in fact, that's how people often use diaries. They try and write through difficult times well, in yes, their lives. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. kind of a confessional, like a good friend that you can visit when you're feeling down. Uh, I've read uh, Irene Gamow's book as mm -hmm. well, and a question that hits me is, what is there to gain by all of this psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. of, she's an iconic writer, but it, it's just to satisfy people's curiosity? Is that the main...? Well, I mean, one could, I suppose, ask that question of any biography and any biographer in the mm. sense that what, what's the point, actually? We can always, we've always got the work, so yeah. why does life interest us? And in the case of a writer, that's true, obviously. It's not as true in the case of perhaps another kind of person who isn't inventing spaceships or whatever. We're not, we don't have another version of their inner life, which is often what a writer's work is. I think that any life is just absolutely fascinating. And so it seems to me that if one can present a life in a way that is engaging, then it's always going to be interesting. And I think that's why biography does as well as it does, and why it takes up so many shelves in libraries. Now, my theory is that a biography of anybody can mm. be interesting. We live in a celebrity culture, so therefore a biography of a famous person is more attractive to the reading public than a biography of my aunt. But I do know that the very well-known and respected biographer, Victoria Glendinning's first biography was of her aunt. The outspoken Victoria Glendinning. That's right, called A Suppressed Cry, and it was about her aunt who suffered from asthma. Mm. And it is a fantastic biography. Yeah. But the aunt was not famous. She was simply Victoria's aunt. Mm -hmm. So, or as Carol Shields once said, there is no such thing as a boring life, no matter whose it is. Well, Virginia Woolf talked about only the very best poets and writers can improve upon or provide us with material that's as fascinating as, as biography in real life. Yes, and that certainly seems to be the case with, with poor Lucy Maud Montgomery. Her life was so kind of gothic that mm -hmm. one can't imagine writing a gothic novel that could be more gothic than Lucy Maud Montgomery's life. To start with uh, an orphan, mm -hmm. an absent father, repressive grandparents raising her, a mean stepmother, a mean stepmother. She had it all. She had all. In fact, she had all the ingredients of a very uh, dark children's fairy tale. And then a miserable marriage, a thwarted love affair before the marriage, which she herself thwarted, according to her. Although that also is up for some discussion, apparently. And then insomnia and madness and drugs and and drugs not in the way not in, not even in in a kind of banal way not in an interesting sort of street life way yeah, yeah. it's just sort of you got to take something to go to sleep so yeah. eventually you end up in the most kind of uninteresting way becoming addicted to drugs and. The drugs could not have helped with the depression, mm -hmm. and people didn't know enough to know that if you take downers all the time to go to sleep that you're going to be feeling awful. And a sense of being, I think, unloved all her life. Yearning for uh, attention. Yeah, and at the same time being very suspicious of that yearning because she's Presbyterian after all, and the worst thing you can do in the Presbyterian religion is call attention to oneself, so mm -hmm. you have a lot of conflict in a woman like that. It's such a, such a sad statement that her wild success seemed to be almost irrelevant to yeah, her life. It wasn't enough. It, d it didn't change anything. That really, I think, fascinated me more than almost anything else about her was the fact that she was published in two dozen countries did not make a whit of difference to her 
grim life as the parson's wife who had to have the, the church teas and run the church socials. It, it made no difference. It's, that, to me, is just fascinating. But, but didn't she uh, get some solace in the, in the letters that the readers wrote Yes, to her? I think she did. I think she enjoyed those. And I also believe that she enjoyed her public performances. I think mm. she got a kind of kick from that. And apparently she was actually very witty when she uh, gave her talks. And beautiful, too, as a young woman. No. She was beautiful as a young woman. She didn't really hang on to that for any extended period of time, but it's true. She was extremely attractive as a young woman, and she had lots of boyfriends and lots of, lots of friends, actually. Mm. I would say her teenage years were probably, uncharacteristically, her happiest because she had a number of friends, there were lots of things going on. This was the period during which she would be keeping her scrapbooks and putting you know, pressed flowers in and invitations to parties and all of that kind, kind of thing. And she had a lot of girlfriends, she had a lot of gentlemen callers swarming around, and it was a very busy and kind of socially active time for her. When things started to turn, I believe, is when her grandfather died and she was required to go back to Cavendish to look after her grandmother in what was essentially the family home. Mm. And ironically, that was the period during which she was writing Anne of Green Gables, but mm. also a period during which she was undergoing enormous depression and a feeling of being absolutely trapped, which she was. Mm. She had to look after Out this in the middle of nowhere. old lady who, yeah. who really was her only mother in a sense, and yet that was conflicted as well though I believe probably not as conflicted as we've been led to understand. And here she was in this house with howling snowstorms outside. They couldn't get out. The mm. mail couldn't come in. Yeah. There are descriptions in the diaries where you, you know, the windows are sort of filling up with snow in the daytime and the mm. house is darkening down and the grandmother won't allow more than one lamp of oil to be used every day and only one room can be heated at a time and just I I just you know you can pretty pretty much reading those sections of the diaries feel the claustrophobia mm -hmm. and yet she's writing Anne of Green Gables while all this is going on. It's almost a counter to it. Mm -hmm. Almost except that in spite of what everyone says I think people have a tendency to confuse Montgomery's work with Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and those mass market girls books that were churned out about the same time, but it's not really. When you look at Anne more closely, you realize that A, she's an orphan, B, she's come from a really, probably, I mean, we don't hear that much about it. We know, however, there is reference to the fact that she was sent off to work for someone and had to look after the children in the house when she was about nine years old, scrub floors, and etc. She is always being misunderstood by the authority figures in her midst. It's a much more complicated book, I think, than we've been led to understand by the way it's presented in the outside world. By the company it keeps. By the company it keeps, and by yeah. the way it's, as they say these days, branded. Uh, I've just finished reading uh, J.M. Coetzee's Summertime, which is a deconstruction of the biography, as he's wont to do. And he has a character in the novel called Biography, women's gossip. He's obviously being intentionally provocative. The protagonist is the biographer of John Cotzea. All this to say that you make reference, and I'm not saying that this is gossipy, mm -hmm. or maybe I am, but you make reference to the fact that 
she could have been lesbian or there were lesbian possibilities. I'm not sure exactly how you phrase yes. it. Well, there there was a relationship in her life that was very difficult to decipher, to say the least. A young woman called Isabel had become obsessed by her, a, a young teacher. And Montgomery was very ambivalent about this young woman and about the obsession and was not unaware of what it meant either. And yet wouldn't really let it go or couldn't really let it go, perhaps because she was lonely or whatever. I think her, her friendships with women were very intense. I don't think she was a lesbian per se. I think she may have had the odd moment when it might have been possible for her to become physically involved with another woman, but I don't think she ever really was. However, in the case of this Isabel person, she did agree to go and spend a night in her bed, and already knowing the kind of obsession that this young woman had, it seemed like one of the most inexplicable decisions mm. <laughs> ever taken. Toying with her or... Uh... Well, maybe. I, I, I don't even know whether it was that. I think she was trying to... She consciously believed that she was trying to modify this girl's behavior. Whereas, who knows what was going on in her unconscious. That's as far as I would take that. I have no evidence beyond that. That was, I mean, She was very interested in other women. There was no question about that. And they were very essential to her emotional life, but that's not unusual. I'm thinking of Vita Sackville West. And, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't like, like well, that. Well, for one thing, like so, much, so many other things in Lucy Maud Montgomery's life, had that been there latent in her personality, she was never in a society that would have allowed it to develop in any way anyway. Yeah, almost as if the tension in that society had pushed her into the creativity that she... I think that that had something to do with it. I think mm. she was also enormously talented, and yeah. I don't think there was any way she could have avoided her talent, even had she wanted to. I think it was always going to be there tapping her on the shoulder. It is, though, a bit disturbing that she was never really able to write the book of adult fiction that I believe and others as well believe that she was capable of writing. You're suggesting too though that Anne of Green Gables can be read as an adult novel. I, I think all of the novels yeah. can be read as adult novels having just reread them all as an adult and the wonderful thing I must say when I was rereading was that I was able to read these books in the very place where I had read them as a young person. You go back there at, at the end of the book. I, I talk about my mother reading yeah. those books and I wish I had brought this and I, I meant to from down at the lake. I have an original edition of Anne of Green Gables that my grandmother bought and oh, my mother read it. At the time that it came out? Yes, and my mother read it and then I read it and we all read the same copy which is really quite something and of course it's completely full apart. Isn't it's that wonderful it, though? You've, you've all had your yes. hands on it. I love really well-read books anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, a great fan of much-worn books. But I also had all the other ones. I mean, I had every single book that Montgomery published and, you know, my parents would give them to me for Christmas and, and I read them. That's why she's so important too, I think, to, oh, yes. uh, to Canadian culture. I think family. without Lucy Maud Montgomery, a number of us would never have come to life, really. Uh, that's why it's so interesting to read those NCL New Canadian Library afterwards by people like Margaret Atwood or Alice Monroe or, or, yourself. or me, mm -hmm. because the effect of coming, especially in those early colonial, or not, they're not that early colonial, but those colonial mm -hmm. days. Well, especially in the Maritimes. I just mean the sort of pace of life there. Oh, right, right, that where she came from, yeah. yes. But I was thinking about, for instance, Alice or Atwood or myself. 
the fact that you as a young uh, young woman suddenly come across a book that's written by a Canadian woman mm. and it's about young Canadian women who mm. are creative and who want to do something with their creativity I, I it's almost impossible to explain to young people mm. today what a kind of an enormous awakening that was well the fact too that she was so popular not just in Canada but around the world that's right she was a, she was an international figure and, and she was it, able to support it, herself it, yes and what it did was it, it allowed you to see that it was possible I mean, now, I don't believe that someone who felt that they had some talent and wanted to be a writer would ever doubt that they could be a Canadian writer, but when I was a kid, people would have laughed at you. Yeah. I mean, if you told your grade 8 teacher that what you wanted to be when you grew up was a, was an author, they, they would have thought you were insane. Mm -hmm. You probably would have been sent to a child psychiatrist. Maybe you should have been sent to a child psychiatrist. Well, nowadays there's more authors than readers. That's true. We could talk about that quite a lot, too. I think that the the sort of overload is starting to do damage to the, the structure, but nevertheless, at least it's taken seriously. It would not have been taken seriously for five minutes when I was a kid. I'm talking to Jane Urquhart, who is the uh, author most recently of a biography of Lucy Maud Montgomery, part of the Extraordinary Canadian series. There's similarities, obviously, between the two of you, and is this book in a way like a dialogue between two Canadian women who share, I hope you don't share her oh, angst no, and anguish, I but, but <laughs> I hope not. there are qualities and are parts things. of your lives that obviously are Yes, I suppose there are things that are the same. One of the things that I understand about her as a result of my own life is that kind of addiction to tribal identity and that, that multi-generational tribal thing that was so strong in Prince Edward Island and in her case was Scottish and Presbyterian. In my case was Irish and indeterminate kind of Protestant Catholicism or Catholic Protestantism, whatever worked at the time. <laughs> Wherever the potato soup was being handed out. That plus a kind of attachment to place yeah. that it comes in that package. The fact that you know your great-great-grandfather built that barn or cleared that acre, that whole sort of pioneer ethic. The roots. What's ironic though is she had roots but she was an orphan. Yes, but you can have plenty of roots if you're in a tribe and mm -hmm. be an orphan and that's yeah. I suppose one of the upsides of, of a tribal kind of thing and the Scots mm -hmm. and the Irish are very good at this stuff. It also means that the landscape that you're looking at is a place where something ancestral happened and it happened somehow to you even yeah. though you weren't there simply because of your association with the tribe in which the event took place. And that kind of narrative is something that I understand and appreciate very much. And yet, so sorry to interrupt, but so many Canadians don't have that because they are relatively new to the country. Yeah, well, maybe they will. I mean, because let's face it, we're all new to the country. You have roots, though. You have how many hundreds of years? Well, on the Irish side, only since the potato famine, so that, that's 150. That's mm. not that long. No, those are short roots, but, you know, for yeah. a Canadian to have that... That's true. That's, that's quite a... deep. On the other side, maybe slightly longer, but not much. For a Canadian to have that, that's true. One of the things that I remember distinctly about being in Europe for a year was asking the people who lived across the very narrow street from us in a, in a French village, when did the Gerben come to Flavigny-sur-Oseram? And they looked at me as though I was 
<laughs> mentally ill. Mm. You know, they'd been there forever. They had no idea when they got there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's right. we all when the cavemen of, came. <laughs> that's right, pretty much. <laughs> but anyway, that combination of a place where something happened. I mean, I don't think that that necessarily has to be part of a narrative. I'm just saying that this is something that Lucy Maud and I have in common. And you, you, I, they're important to your uh, creative yes, work. Yes, and that's who we, you know, that's who I am, and there's nothing I can do about that. Mm. But I, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate an urban narrative that takes place as a result of a, you know, of a, of an instant arrival. In fact, away was sort of about that—that that mm. business of suddenly coming up against something that was completely unfamiliar to you. Mm. I mean, I think this whole country's about that. Mm. But in the case of Lucy Maud, she was probably even more than me, because I'm not as entrenched in it as I believe she was. She wasn't able to get out of it, and that was part of her tragedy, I think, mm. both as a writer and as a human being. She wasn't able to get out of the tribe. She wasn't able to get out of the tribe. Mm. She could get herself physically out of the tribe, but mm. she couldn't get herself mentally out of the tribe. She felt that tribe judging her all her life. Mm. And so the, the kind of adulation that she would get from the external world really didn't matter because she didn't ha feel that she had the kind of love and admiration that she sought from her grandparents, her uncles, you know. Or her absent father. Or her yeah. absent father, yeah. Probably most importantly her absent father. Which is again, this is sort of, the conversation comes back to this sort of psychoanalytical mm -hmm. where, where I wonder how she would feel about us publicly psychoanalyzing her. Well she left a lot of material for us to do that yes. so yeah. i don't think she would fully object although she probably wouldn't she wanted to detail control it. she would have wanted to control it detail yeah. by detail yeah. i when you say that i'm thinking with some kind of humorous interest in the fact that Rennie Levac is uh, one of the extraordinary Canadians <laughs> in the in this biographical series. <laughs> you just think, I wonder how Rennie Levac would feel about that. He would hate it. Mm. But there it is, you know. Yeah. So um, the uh, I guess the um, we've talked about the pride of success. I think there's a uh, the the fact that she was able to achieve such international success as a woman was and a Canadian a, and a Canadian Th these are obviously reasons why she's extraordinary oh yes for us. and and she did it early on too that's the other thing yeah she met with despite having a a dishonest publisher oh yeah um I, I, we, we, we won't make some sweeping statement about <laughs> publishers at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, and you make the point that this poor woman, it's almost as if she's, whatever she loves or whatever success she has, it's it, she's not necessarily sabotaging it, but she expects it to go wrong, and it yes. does. Yes. It's almost a, a will, an Well, outlook. she herself said that it seemed to her, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if she loved something, it was doomed. And that applied to places, people, animals. Um, I mean, one of the most heartbreaking things in terms of places, as far as I was concerned anyway, was the fact that the Canadian government stepped right in there and expropriated property from her relatives 
and it, and you know made a national park around the whole notion of Anne of Green Gables without ever consulting her. And of course that did terrible things to her relationship with the people who were expropriated, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. It's it's almost unthinkable in a way. And that was the beginning of of something that I think is the book that needs to be written and not one that would have been appropriate for this series. But that the exploitation of Lucy Maud has been phenomenal in or my of, opinion. Or of Anne. No, I would say of Lucy Maud herself. Of her crea creation? Of her of her life, this is an example, yeah. of her, of what she created, yes, but just, I mean, I, every time you turn around, there is there is some other kind of spin-off of this enormous phenomenon, which was her creative output, but even her life. Mm. So, it's, it's almost here, it's almost like the, the Dion quintuplets. In a way, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you, ha because the government was involved, but now of course there's all kinds of other things going on. I mean, television series, mm. and, and it, it's when you know that the woman who was the the source of all of this was as heartbroken as she was most mm. of the time. It's a sad tale, and it's still going on. Over and above the dialogue that the two of you are having in this book, or at least. This is the result of a dialogue that you've had with what she's left behind. What else is there that Canadians can learn from your book? Well, I think the fact that it's important for us to see ourselves reflected in works of literature. I think it's also important to remember that this is something that's pretty new. So that, for example, in the last chapter, I talk about a young girl who has been reading Lucy Maud all summer long, suddenly seeing her world in a different way. She sees it as something magical, something that has importance, that has been mythologized for mm. her by someone. Legitimized. And, well, more than legitimized. I mean, there's been some magic injected into it. It already is legitimate if you can plow the field and make the corn grow, but now suddenly there's more to it than that. Narrative is an extremely important part of any culture. And Canada didn't have its own narrative. It was such a colonial place. We were just surviving. Right? We were, yeah. Well, that's the whole avid yeah. survival yeah. thing. But we took our narratives from other places. And the great thing about Lucy Maud was that she was able to give us back narratives that, especially at the time, reflected the kind of lives that people were were living. Perhaps a slightly idealized version, and nothing like that had ever happened before. And it was injected at a level, adolescent level, which was kind of nice in a way too, mm, in a metaphorical sense, mm. because the country was a, an adolescent at the time, and the people who were reading the books with the most passion, I would think, would have been adolescents. Well, everyone was reading the books, as you know, when people were like Mark Twain and Baldwin were reading the book, her books. So. Mm. It wasn't as if she'd been ghettoized into, at that point, she has been since, but into that period. But to have that wonderful moment where the street corner that's a block away is suddenly on the page in front of you, that is quite extraordinary. And it would have been hugely unusual in Canada. I just wonder, you talk about the importance of narrative uh, about your people, your mm -hmm. country and why it's so important. Why is it so important? I think it's important because 
you need to believe that your experiences have been lived in another state, in a transformed state. And uh, I think that's why people sat around campfires 2,500 years ago and told each other stories about hunting bison or whatever. It's a, it's a very important part of the human experience. I think it's absolutely essential. Of course, you know, there's all kinds of arguments about whose version is what, and obviously Lucy Maud did not represent every aspect of the community, but she represented a big part of the community at that time. The world that she represented mm. was one that you could have seen almost anywhere across the country at that time. Things have changed since then, and of course it didn't include all kinds of minorities because... They weren't around. Well, no, yeah. that's not true, in fact. Well, they weren't, they weren't so obvious. They were, they, they, were, they were here. Mm. It, that, that was one of the things I discovered from the Vimy Monument, because of the names on the monument mm. were surprisingly multicultural from First World War. Not, not uh, so I mean, visible. We were in the middle of another wave of immigration in the same way that we were in the 1840s when the Irish were coming, so this is what's happening now, and then that changes things. But, you know, it doesn't mean that one dismisses what happened before. I still think that her books are important. And I still think that, you know, all you have to do is drive, what, five miles north of here, and you are in a system that was laid out in the 19th century. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can't really say it's irrelevant because you're driving on the road that some surveyor <laughs> in the 19th century surveyed and, there, and is still being used. You talked about uh, cavemen sitting around telling stories. One of the current theses on storytelling is that it's a way for us to, in effect, survive. Now, there's that word again <laughs> that mm -hmm. I'll put aside. But by us, do you mean Canadians? Human, I mean, human beings tell stories to deal with situations that they don't want to get into physically in reality. It's a way of working through possible scenarios so that mm -hmm. they can survive. Mm -hmm. I still haven't gotten a, an answer other than it's important for us mm -hmm. to have our own narrative. It's magical, it's pride. It's yes, it's comforting. It's comforting. It, at the risk of using that word again, it exists after you're gone. It gives someone a kind of posterity. For the country. Well, we, so we can claim Lucy Maud Montgomery. No, for, hum, for human beings, I think. I mean, if you're talking about narrative, as opposed to her narrative. It also provides you with a kind of structure. It, it makes your own irrelevant experience more important, I suppose. And more important perhaps on a spiritual level or on a historical level. It unites the singular with the plural. It can be used in very negative ways as well, as you know from various fascist regimes that would present a kind of narrative in a particular way and you mm -hmm. want to be part of this. Scapegoats. Yeah. I remember reading, for instance, fairy tales when I was a child and I was still living in northern, northern, northern Ontario. <laughs> and, you know, I was reading about these castles and princesses and things and it was all quite marvelous. But there was absolutely nothing outside my door that looked anything like that. Whereas had I been in Europe, there would have been. Funny, I was looking through a book of castles, British castles, and there's an Urquhart. Yes, there is an Urquhart castle. But you'll be happy to know that not a single Urquhart ever lived in it. This is my husband's name, by the way. And the reason it's called Urquhart Castle is because it's at the end of a glen called Glen Urquhart. And I believe the Macduffs or the McCoys or somebody actually <laughs> lived in the castle. The Urquharts were the caretakers, I think. Okay. It's on Loch Ness. So I'm going to keep digging just for a little bit longer. The importance of narrative to our country, countrymen and women. Okay. First of all, we've suggested that there's a certain pride, there's a certain magic, there's a certain comfort. 
there's we're not the only person that's going through this. There's also place. I think that's very important. And one of the reasons that I believe that place is as important as it is, is the gigantic numbers of letters that I myself have received from people whose little town or something <laughs> was mentioned in passing in a sentence in my novels. This would often bring out a letter, more than almost anything else. Thank you for mentioning our town? No, it would be, I live in Grimsby, and I noticed that your character Tillman went through Grimsby on his way. You know, this, <laughs> I, ha I have enormous numbers of letters of that nature. And whether the place be the corner of a particularly wretched part of a city, or whether it be a country road, I, I think that that side of place is irrelevant. Mm. I just think that the evocation of place is important. And one of the things that I found astounding, for example, when I went to Haworth in England, was the fact that it was still there. I couldn't believe it. I had fully prepared myself for the fact that the, the moors <laughs> and Wuthering Heights and all that stuff was just not going to be there. It would be covered with chemical companies or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't going to be there. But it was there. And not only was it there, it was still alive. You know, in other words, it wasn't completely disnified, which is mm -hmm. another whole discussion, by the way, when it comes to place, which is what happened to the place oh, yes. that Lucy Maud had immortalized. No just winding down here. I've mentioned the dialogue between the two of you. I wonder if you could perhaps do a bit of now and then in terms of how she would have gone about writing a novel back then and how you go about writing a novel now given all the changes that have occurred. Well, I am not nearly as dependent as she was on a publisher telling me what to do. It's the first thing. I think one of the great tragedies of Lucy Maud's literary development, and there are several along the way, was the fact that when she accepted her contract with Page, the publisher, the whole notion of sequel was in the contract. So that her creativity wasn't allowed to develop in a free way because she was expected to produce a particular kind of book over and over and over and over again. Now, I've never had that happen. Mass production. It's sort of like mass production. She did it awfully well, I have to say. Mm. I mean, the results were very, very good. I would think that if she had despised doing it with yeah. every fiber of her body, that the books would not have had the kind of spirit that they have. It's extraordinary, the number, too. I don't think many people realize how yeah. many there are. How many are there altogether? Oh, God, that's a good question. I probably don't even know, but I know, for example, that in the Anne series, there are nine. And the ninth one is The Road to Yesterday, which is just about to be republished as Blythes Are Quoted, I think is the title. The Road to Yesterday being Anne's children at a kind of grown-up stage which, you know, she married Gilbert Blythe, and so therefore the Blythes being... She was very prolific. I would say there you know, at least a couple of dozen. For me, I have never been forced to write a... Well, except for Lucy Maud. <laughs> I've never... Well, you weren't forced. I mean, they came to you and begged you, right? Well, that's pretty much the same thing. Anyway... <laughs> um, because you can't say no. That's right. I've been obviously permitted to choose my own subjects and to run wildly off in very many different kinds of directions, which is essential to me, actually, in terms of writing. With so, the knowledge that they'll publish it? Well, no, I don't have the knowledge that they'll publish it. Mm -hmm. I never know from one book to the next. I mean, I have to present a fully foreign manuscript, and then we, you wait and see. There's always a chance, I suppose, that they wouldn't. Okay. 
but in her case, she knew exactly what was expected of her, and she knew she had to produce a certain kind of thing. And I think that that would have been very difficult for me, but it obviously wasn't for her. She probably felt lucky to have what she. I think had. so. You know, and again, that's you know a now and then thing. If you were wealthy, you could do anything you wanted. Yeah, holds for every everything, doesn't it? It does. It does. And also, the judgment that comes down on you is a lot less harsh if you do something that is risky. If you happen to already be well situated in society. What about the the way that you would research? She's isolated, so she doesn't get to bang ideas around with too many literary folk. No, and she never did. Her life was very narrow in a, in a certain sense in that she lived the life of a parson's wife. And before that she lived the, the life of a dutiful granddaughter. Before that the life of a very bright young rural person who was always top of the class and etc. So her reading habits were kind of interesting in that they weren't that sophisticated. So she relied to a greater extent on her imagination? I think she relied upon her imagination. She tried to keep up with what was going on. She absolutely disapproved of modernism. She hated Morley Callahan's work, for example. It seems as if she felt that she had to improve on life rather than reveal life. But I was fascinated by the fact that, I mean, she was reading Bulwer-Lytton, for example, when she was a young person, as almost everybody was. And I mean, she would only have had what was available to her. So her reading habits, as I say, were not that sophisticated. They, they were kind of out of whack with her intelligence, which was extremely vivid. But she was a very, very bright person, but she didn't really have the access to the intellectual life. Or the internet. Final question, and that is, uh, what did you find most extraordinary about her? I think the absolute disconnect on one level between her life and her art, in that her life was as grim as it was, and her art was as, I would use the term life-enhancing rather than, you know, Sunny Pollyanna, because it wasn't Sunny Pollyanna, and any careful examination of the novels would make that clear. And one of the things I found interesting is the way that this new book is being marketed as, you know, suddenly adultery, murder, da-da-da-da-da, you know, it's not a new book, but it's, it's an expansion of an old book. But all of that is there in earlier Lucy Montgomery novels. For instance, the Emily series, it's all there. I mean, all kinds of stuff going on. But it is true that people overcome these problems of adultery and murder, whatever, incest, and who knows what all. So that disconnect takes place. The kind of banal, awful grimness of her life is its not revealed in her novels. So that, that I find extraordinary. It's admirable, I think, in a way, that someone who really could be considered to have a disability was able to give so many other people so much joy. It's wonderful. Strength. Yeah, a kind of strength that was almost impossible to imagine under the conditions. When you're reading the diaries, you read like several entries where she is at her wit's end. She really can barely make it down the hall, never mind get through the day. Mm -hmm. And then at the end she'll say, just heard from the publisher, they've got the new pat of silver birch and they think it's wonderful. How great, you know. And she's thinking, what? When did you do that? <laughs> and so that was really something. And the other thing was the fact that she, and this is perhaps not quite as admirable in my mind, you wanted her to get out. You wanted her to get out of her prison. And she was able to do that. She really was. She was financially able 
to spring herself had she been emotionally able to do it. From, from the, the marriage? Parson's life, being the Parson's wife, yes, from the marriage, but she couldn't face it in herself. She was too much of a Presbyterian, I guess, really. Duty-bound and concerned what others thought. That's right. That makes her extraordinary as well, because had she been a man, I think she would have gone. I think she would have been in Greenwich Village, quite frankly. And who knows what we would have seen. Exactly. You think of uh, Thomas Wolfe, for example. Almost everybody left behind some kind of rural childhood, and you mm -hmm. can't go home again, and all of that. But the trouble with her was she couldn't leave home, regardless of how far away she went. Well, thanks for um, sharing your dialogue with her, with us. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I've been speaking with Jane Urquhart, who has written six internationally acclaimed novels and is the author of a collection of short stories and four books of poetry, plus as editor of the Penguin Book of Canadian Short Stories. She lives in southern Ontario. Thanks again. Thank you.